Well, church, here we are. Uh, here I am. Um, I just want to thank those guys who have preached the last few weeks for us and brought us the word. Uh, again, it is a joy that we get to share in that, that we have a, a group of, of men growing um, in that and looking at ministry and what that means for them. It's just a joy um, as well uh, to just be a part of what God is doing here in the valley, here in this place. And so we come before him thanking him for all of that. I want to get right to it today. Um, a lot of times we might start with a story um, or something else. I, I, we're not going to do that today. We just need to get right into John. Okay, we need to get right there. John 13. I'm going to invite you to open your Bibles if you've got them. Um, starting in verse 12, we're going to verse 20. This is a continuation of uh, what we looked at last week. Don uh, preached the first part of this story for us last week, and um, I'm going to be bringing it uh, to an end, at least this segment, this week. So John chapter 13, verses 12 through 20. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. This is the word of the Lord, and it is a good word. Amen? Some of us are looking for more. Some of us are looking to be a part of something that matters. I would hope all of us would, but I know that not all of us are. Some of us are content with something far less than what will matter and what does matter. For some of us, we look in the wrong places for what matters most. For some of us, we have been looking in the right places, and I just want you to know that if that's you today, then you're in luck. You are for whom this message is for. The rest of you, maybe the rest of us, I don't know if this message is for you, but I hope and I pray that it is. I don't know if this message is for you, or if it will go in one ear and out the other. I don't know if this message is for you, or if you will, by the time you leave here today, simply dismiss it because it doesn't fit who you have been or who you want to be. I don't know if this message is for you. 
In verse 18, in verse 18, Jesus says to his disciples this very thing. He says, I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. He's talking about Judas. And he's talking about one for whom the things he's teaching and showing right now are not for him. I mean, he's basically saying, look, I'm talking to you all, to the 11, but one of you, the 12th in the room, isn't going to get it. That's what Jesus says. About one who's in the room with him, I can only assume the same is true for us here. So I don't know if this message is for you. In verse 19, Jesus uses Judas's unbelief and his betrayal of Jesus as a confirmation of who he is. It's kind of backwards if you think about it. Right on the one hand, you might say, well, hey, look, even Jesus didn't quite know what was going to happen. No, of course he knew. He knew that Judas would betray him. He knew that everything he had ever said had gone in one ear and out the other on Judas. But he knew that there would be those for whom the message would land. In verse 12, in verse 12, it says that we need washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them. Now, I just want to pause there real quick. Because there are for those whom the message will not land, this message is not for you even here today. But for those for whom Jesus is in the right place, his place in your life, this message is for you. Friends, the best things in our lives come when Jesus is in the right place in our lives. And so he's just washed the disciples' feet. He's just done this amazing act of service. And then what does he do? He resumes the right place at the table. What place is that? It's the head, of course. The one who deserves to be at the head. The one who's in the middle. The, the, the seat where everybody can be as close as possible. Jesus resumes his right place at the head of the table. The place he should be for all of us. The right place. The place where the Lord sits. The place where the teacher sits. Friends, I want to tell you, Jesus has a right place in your life and in my life. And it is as Lord and teacher. You see it over and over again in this passage. He says, you have called me Lord and teacher, and you are right to do so. And he says, you've, you've called me Lord and teacher, and I am that, and yet I wash your feet. Friends, if Jesus is not your Lord and teacher, right, the right place in your life today, then I just want you to know nothing I say from this point forward matters. Nothing. 
In fact, what you're going to discover is that everything we have in this passage is going to be so incredibly encouraging to those people in this room room where Jesus is sitting at the right place. But if he's not, then you are going to be frustrated today. Frustrated. Because what Jesus asks us to do here is impossible. Not just difficult. It's impossible to do without him in the right place in our life. So friends, I want to urge you right now. If Jesus is not in the right place in your life, when you walk through the doors today, right now is the moment to turn to him and say, Lord, I need you to be in the right place today. I want you to be in the right place today. There are those of us in this room who will be challenged by the message today, and at first inclination will think, no, I'm not doing that. But by the time you wake up tomorrow morning, the Spirit will have worked in you and will have guided you and showed you and taught you, and you will be saying a resounding amen. But there are others of us in this room who will hear this today and who won't, who won't respond favorably. And there are others of us in this room today that as I speak today, you're going to hear an amen. You're going to hear, yes, this is what we need to be. And we'll go and do it. Church, is this message today for you? I leave it to you to answer that question by the end of today. Friends, what we're going to talk today about first of all, and really for most of our time, is being like Jesus. Is being like Jesus. And here's where we need to land this. In verse 13, he says, You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. Verse 14, If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Now, foot washing is a weird thing. For us in today's culture, foot washing has largely lost its significance. It doesn't really matter. Right? Because for most of us, even though our feet may be a little bit smelly, a little sweaty, most of us showered this morning or last night, right? We're not dirty. Feet washing is not a thing we do. At the time, it was a thing that was done. It was regular. It was a normal part of uh, civilized life. As you went to a party, your feet got dirty. You'd get there and a servant would wash your feet. There was no servant. It might be one of the younger members of the household but somebody did, because as you walked, your feet got really dirty. So Jesus here in verse 14, he tells us that we need to do what he did. Now some of us would say, all right, well he washed their feet. I guess we need a, I don't know, fourth or fifth sacrament. Right? That he said, hey, you should take communion. Do this as often as you're gathered together. The same language we find here. Do this. 
I don't know about you, but most of us are not regularly washing feet when we come to church. If you are, I don't know about it, and it's weird. Okay? You know how easy it would be if all Jesus wanted us to do was wash each other's feet? I mean, I'm not really a foot guy. But I've washed feet. I've done that. I've taken part in that. It's a neat thing. I'll talk about that in a little bit. But what Jesus is doing here is he's telling us not exactly what we're supposed to do, but he's telling us the magnitude of which we are supposed to do. Because here's what he says in the next verse. And I want you to hear this. Right first he says, in verse 14, you also ought to wash one another's feet. In verse 15, he says, for I've given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Now, for those of us who are looking to check off the boxes, this gets really easy. All right, what you do is every year during Holy Week, on Thursday night, which is when this would have taken place, you have a foot washing service at your church. And you say, all right, I participated in that for this year. Check, done, I'm good. But it doesn't do anything for you. Because there is nothing that we can do to be check, done, and good. What Jesus is, is saying here, when he says just... What he's saying is that it is this, this phrase, in as much. There's a quantity involved here, not the specific act. So what we see is that he is calling us to do the very things that he did as in a quantity, not a specific. Which means that if you make it your whole life without ever washing someone's feet, that's fine. But if you make it your entire life without doing in as much as Jesus did right here, you are not fine. What he's saying is that I just did a thing, and you need to do that kind of thing too. And so what we want to do today is actually look at what he's doing in this foot washing. Right, Don? brought us last week through humility and Jesus' love and his cleansing. What we are going to see today is what Jesus did overall to say, hey, look, Jesus has given us a command here to do exactly what he's done, to do what he's done. So we're going to look at that. Now, it is true that we should be and strive to be like Christ in every way. And as you study the scriptures and you read about Christ, that should become a monumental task. Today is no different, even looking at one set of verses. None of us are going to do this perfectly, but we are all called to do it. So what does he do? The first thing he does is proclaim the gospel in word and action. Let me say that again. The first thing he does in, in washing his disciples' feet is to proclaim the gospel in word and action. A little over a month ago, right outside in the parking lot out here, I preached a sermon about our fourth core commitment. That's the road, okay? To go show and tell the gospel boldly. We are not to be a people that merely tell the gospel or merely show it, but to do both boldly. And that's precisely what Jesus is doing as he washes the disciples' feet. 
I want to read uh, from you a, a paragraph out of um, James Montgomery Boyce's commentary on this. He said it faster and better than I ever could, which is why I'm just going to read it to you. Okay? This is James Mont Montgomery Boyce, um, and he writes this. We can easily follow the meaning of the parable by comparing the verses from Philippians. That's Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8, that I cited earlier with the events that John records. First, and hear this. I want you to hear this. First, John tells us that Jesus rose from the supper. That's the language we see back at the beginning of this chapter. This had already been done in a far greater way when he rose from his throne of glory prior to his coming into this world. Second, it says he laid aside his garments. Paul, in Philippians, says that when he came into the world, he laid aside that glory which was his so that he could appear as a true man and not blind with his celestial glory who looked upon him. That's a great line. Next, he took a towel and girded himself. This was the garb of a servant, a role that Paul says he took upon himself. Finally, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet, just as in a few short hours he was to pour out his blood for the washing away of human sin by the atonement. To see the end of the parable, we need only skip over to verse 12, which is, of course, where we started today. For there we read, when he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. In the same way, Christ is even now highly exalted. Or again, as the author of Hebrews writes, after he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Church, what you need to know is that as Jesus washes his feet, the disciples' feet, he's, he's not just acting as a servant or teaching a lesson about humility. He is in his actions and words proclaiming the gospel. He's actually play-acting all the way through his whole story in just a couple paragraphs. He proclaims the gospel in his actions and his words. And that is something that we too are called to. Right? He says, do this just as I did. Well, that means that none of us are excluded from the proclamation of the gospel to the world. Church, as Jesus proclaimed and showed, so must we. Amen? When I think about our community that we live in right now, what I know and what I see is a whole lot of people that we claim to love and care for. And they're living in darkness. And if they died today, they would go to hell. Do we love these people? Do we love God enough and these people enough to proclaim to them in word and action the gospel that they might see and believe. What's the second thing that he did in this foot washing? He, of course, showed humility. Now, I'm just going to tell you, Don hit this really hard last week. If you need to hear what Don said on humility last week, go back and listen to it. It's on Facebook, YouTube, and on our website. You have no excuse. One of the things he did tell us is that humility 
is often defined now as not thinking less of yourself, but rather thinking of yourself less. It means putting others first. It means thinking more highly of others than yourself. It means serving others and the church well. He said some other things as well. But that's just a little glimmer, a little glimpse. In this foot washing, Jesus showed humility. And church, we are to do just as he has done. To show humility. To put others first. To make them the priority. If you need more on that, check out Don's sermon from last week. What's the next thing he did? For anybody keeping track, this would be the third one. He practiced hospitality. He practiced hospitality. Now, I just want you to know this is the biggest point in my entire sermon. It is. You might wonder why. It's because every bit of chapter 13, particularly these two paragraphs, 1 through 20, is full of the theme of hospitality. It's everywhere. The very fact that Jesus is playing host and making sure that the guests at the party are taken care of, that's hospitality. But it lands in verse 20, and hear this well. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. What does it mean to receive someone? It literally means to, to, to welcome them in and show hospitality. Jesus is concerned with how we open up our space and our lives to people. For many years, hospitality has been something I have worried about the modern church for. Because it is one of the strongest most common commands in the New Testament. And it is one of the things that modern Christians in America are the worst at. And we don't care. I want you to hear this. Hebrews 13, 2. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. 1 Peter 4, 9. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Romans 12, 13, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Going all the way back to the Old Testament, Leviticus 19, 34, you shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. We are commanded over and over again as believers to show hospitality. But we live in a culture that closes our doors to everyone around us. As modern people, we have become kings and queens of castles. Castles that have become fortresses. That keep everything out. When what Christ is telling us in scripture to do is to bring everyone in. We tend to only open our doors, our homes, to those who are closest to us, our family and our friends. But the scriptures tell us that our doors should be open to strangers. 
just think about it. I mean, are there really a stranger people than live here in Lahana? We have the perfect opportunity to do the exact thing that Scripture calls us to. And we miss out. We miss out. I'd go back to, uh, to that verse in Hebrews. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. The idea there being that, that when someone comes and needs a place, that person might just be an angel sent from the Lord to bring blessing. Hospitality is one of those themes in Scripture that we ignore. And it's one of the reasons why the church in its modern times is struggling. Because we keep our doors closed, but not just our doors, our very hearts. How do we practice some hospitality? Well, here's some thoughts. Number one, invite someone over for Thanksgiving dinner. Oh, wait, you say. But the governor told us that we're not allowed to do that. Yeah, he did, sort of. We might scoff at the current restrictions and the current things, but instead of scoffing, can we welcome them? Here's why. We might want to spend time with our big family or gathering many, many friends, but every one of us has a neighbor who has been told by their family, no, you can't come. Because every one of us knows someone whose family is terrified of COVID-19. And so we have people in our community who have been disinvited to family gatherings and are sitting there thinking, well, now what? Invite them in. When you meet someone who doesn't have a place to go, whether they're your friend, your family, or your enemy, this is an amazing time to say, hey, I've got a place at my table. And if you still want to follow the restrictions, amen. Your family plus them. We're all running around upset and mad about COVID-19, but there are, there are opportunities in front of us because of this. Tremendous opportunities to show hospitality in one way or another. And just a reminder, you don't need it to be Thanksgiving or Christmas to do this kind of a thing. I mean, most of us have an extra table or an extra chair at our table every night of the week. Number two, when we're thinking about ways to show hospitality, we need to make room for people in our lives. And I say this both figuratively and literally. Right? Figuratively, some of us are far too busy to be people of hospitality. I suffer from this sometimes. I'm running in all these directions, and it's hard to stop and just welcome someone in. Do you have the room to simply sit down with someone and spend some time together? Now, literally, though, how many of you actually have an extra room in your house? How many of you have a mother-in-law suite or a camper sitting outside where someone could stay and be out of the cold? 
How many of us could foster a child or adopt a child? How many of us could welcome one of our kids' friends into our home as a safe refuge because they're living in a chaotic and crazy situation? Do you have room in your life physically to welcome someone and bring them in and love them, to show hospitality? Church, the third way I think we can show hospitality is by thinking about it beyond the bounds of our home. Wherever you are, it is your job as a believer to be hospitable. You might be at Walmart. You might be at school or at work. The call for us to be hospitable is not limited to our homes. It is everywhere. And we are a people, church, who are both of this world and of a future one, right? We are already living in our eternal existence in a way. And what we can do is show people hospitality into that from this one. By how we treat them, how we care for them, how we reach out to them. It's true as we come here to this building... It is not my job alone or our greeting team, which has kind of morphed into everybody who wants to stand outside. It is not our jobs alone to show hospitality as people come here. It is all of our jobs. Some of you are really good at this. I'm going to point out Fiva. She's in here, new people come, and she's going and talking to them, and it's great. Church, we need to be hospitable everywhere we are. That especially includes here. Jesus shows this hospitality in this moment. He takes charge of this whole thing even though it's not his house. And he calls us to do the same. What else does Jesus do as he's washing their feet? He is serving in a powerful way. Serving in a powerful way. This act of service that we read about here, this foot washing, is enough to make Peter protest in verse 6 and 8. Right? Let's go back to that really quick. Jesus is washing their feet, and in verse 6, Jesus says, or it says, He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, verse 8, You shall never wash my feet. Think about the powerfulness in that word. Have you ever said no to Jesus? Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Here's the real power. Here's where you really see it. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. In an instant, Peter goes from never to all of me. This is one of the most powerful moments in Scripture. He's washing feet. Friends, I want to tell you, even today, if you ever get to participate in a foot washing service, 
it can still be a really powerful moment. Like I said earlier, not something that's required, not some institution like the Lord's Supper or baptism that, that, we, that we say, hey, look, this is something that we must do if we're going to follow his commands. But I remember a time, and this is almost 20 years ago, and I still remember it vividly in my mind. It's the first time I ever experienced a foot washing service in a Christian context. I was a student chaplain in college, and we went off on a student chaplain retreat before the semester started. And on the last night of that retreat, I remember the, um, the, the, the chaplain for the whole school stood up and, 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 and he talked about all of this. And then he washed the feet of a bunch of student leaders, basically like kind of group leaders, who were then charged to wash all of their, the feet of all the people who were serving under them. Now, feet are weird. Some people don't like it. Some people don't like it, but there's still a powerful moment in this idea that what you're saying when you wash somebody's feet literally is, I will do anything for you. Right? Because if you're going to wash somebody's feet, like, what else is left? So somebody says to you as they wash your feet, they say, look, I am here for you. I will do what I need to do for you. What you need me to do for you, I will do. You ask, I will do it. That's power. Church, I want to tell you, we are called to do the same kind of thing, right? It may not be washing feet. We might do that someday. It's not something that we do regularly around here. But what it's saying, what it's saying is powerful. What are some other powerful ways that we can serve? You could take a broken and scared teenager by the hand and help them through a pregnancy that they did not plan. You want to do that kind of work? Talk to Rebecca. You could walk through the court system with a family in crisis as an advocate. You want to do that kind of work? Talk to Jeannie. You could say yes to an act of generosity that could change someone's circumstances or in the least lighten their load. For Jesus has said to us, what? That his burden is light. What better way of acting out in generosity than to lighten somebody else's load, financially or otherwise? I think about Mother Teresa loving and embracing dying orphans in Calcutta. How about reaching out to a lonely elderly neighbor who has been isolated during this COVID-19 crisis? What powerful statements can we make in our serving of others as the church? The next thing Jesus does in foot washing is gets dirty in service. Jesus got dirty in service. Friends, none of us, I don't think, can really imagine the filth involved in washing someone's feet back then. Though I do suspect, as I was thinking about it, that some of us may have the best way to grasp that, certainly over our brothers and sisters who live in more urban areas. For if you walk through any one of our corrals, 
be it horses or cows or in our case yaks, the day after it has rained, you know what's on your feet. Most of us would be horrified at the thought of then walking into a building with that on our feet. And that's nothing. Because as people in the first century walked around, they were walking through the fecal matter and dirt and mud of who knows what and how many. Their calluses might have made horses' hooves feel soft. This is a dirty job. We actually lose the significance when we do a foot washing in modern times. Because like I said before, all we're talking about is a little bit of sweat and stink. Jesus takes a basin of water. He pours it into a bowl. He washes feet. Do you know how dirty that water is the moment that starts? His hands are in that. It's splashing all over his clothes. He's kneeling on the floor, which has been walked on by all these dirty feet. This is gross. Jesus gets dirty in service, but the, the really crazy thing is that this is nothing in comparison to how dirty he's going to be in like 12 hours when he takes on the sin of the world. But some of us, we won't touch someone who's a little bit dirty. We won't go near someone who's a little bit smelly. We won't let someone like that ride in our cars or into our homes. In his ministry, Jesus took hold of lepers and embraced them. He laid hands on those with wounds, unexplained paralysis, communicable diseases, and in general, filthy, dirty people. Church, will we? Will we? I remember reading a book a number of years ago in which the author, and I don't know who it was, I keep trying to find who it was, and I can't. But the author tells the story, he was a pastor, and he was hosting a small group at his house. And he has a chair, his chair. Anybody have a chair? Right, that chair in your house that is your chair, the one that if you're in the room, nobody else is sitting in. This particular pastor, if I remember the story right, had spent a little too much money on this chair, right? You like buy it and then you think, ah, that was a little ex ex extensive, right? It was a little beyond what I should have done. So he's hosting community group or small group or whatever they call it. And in walks the dirtiest and stinkiest woman from the church. And what does she do? She beelines for his chair. Right? You know this is going to happen. He be, she beelines for the chair. And there's a moment of crisis in his mind as he realizes what she's doing. Right? Do I let her sit in my chair and defile it? Or do I interrupt her and help her to a different seat? But therein lies the problem, right? Why is there a crisis between caring for a woman made in the image of God over a chair made by human hands? Do we love the least of these? Do we love the dirty, the messy, the smelly, the sick? the broken, the sinful, the contagious. Jesus sure did. 
the next thing Jesus does. He cleansed them from sin. Hospitality was the longest one. I hope that right now this is going to be the most powerful one. Last week, Don talked about how one of the things Jesus does here is cleansing from sin. It's very clearly in, in the end of the paragraph last week. Jesus tells them that he needs to cleanse them. He is cleansing them from sin. And we might then say, well, we certainly can't forgive someone's sins. And you're right, we can't. We can't. He is the one, God is the one who forgives. We have no power to forgive sins. And yet, Jesus calls us to do what? To do just as he did. That means in every way. Which means there is some element for you and I, for the believer, for the Christian, who is trying to be like Christ, that we help cleanse people from their sin. Friends, we are called to participate in the sanctifying work of putting ours and our brothers and sisters' sin to death, helping them be cleansed from sin. Galatians 6, 1 through 2 says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, what kind of transgression? Any transgression. You who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. We are called to help each other put our sin to death. Talk about powerful statements. Talk about powerful statements. What do we most often do when we see sin in one of our brothers and sisters here at church? My guess is we do things in this order. The first thing we do is ignore it. Right? Not my business, not my problem. What's the second thing we do? We gossip about it. Right? We go. We tell someone else, we tell someone else, hey, did you, did you see that? Did you see that? Did you? Now, we tell ourselves that what we're doing when we do that is we want to help them, right? We're seeing if we can gather some people to go. But nobody ever goes. Nobody does. We are called to cleanse each other from sin, just as Christ himself did. And church, what I want to challenge us in is to not underestimate, do not underestimate the power of one believer helping another through the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. Right? I don't have a lot of power myself, but the Holy Spirit living inside of me and bringing me forth, declaring God's word to each other, there is power in that. Power. And we shy away from it because we fear that it won't go well. We fear that nothing good ever happens when we do that. And yes, yeah, some of us have some of those stories. But do we fear so much that we doubt the power of God to change the hearts and minds of fellow believers? 
Jesus cleansed us from our sin. He calls us to seek to do the same. What I would say is this. Every single one of us needs to have someone that we go to for help in confession, in repentance, and growth. And every one of us should have someone who comes to us. Those might be the same people, or it might be different. But if we don't, then we are missing out, and we are neglecting God's word in our lives. He calls us to help each other. If you're not going to anyone for help, then there is someone for whom you are depriving the call of God on their life to help you. And if nobody's coming to you, then you are depriving someone else of the power to put sin to death, to help them along with that. Just as Christ does for us. I want to be really clear right now because every one of these things is something that every one of us who is a believer is called to. Right? He doesn't say, do just as I did except one or two. He says, just as. That's our call. None of the disciples could turn around and respond to Jesus. You know, Jesus, I just don't do feet. Right? None of them could turn around and be like, you know, Jesus, I, mean, I get you here. But I really don't like that. So I'm going to leave that to Joseph. Or I'm going to leave that to Carol. And I'm going to focus on other things. He calls us to these things. We cannot respond, I will not do that. And if you do, then this message is not for you. There's a line drawn in the sand here. When Jesus says to us, you ought to do this. And then tells us that we should do just as he has done. There's a line. And if we're standing on one side of that line saying, you know, Jesus, no. Then we've missed it. Then we've missed him. And so if you're standing here, you're sitting here and you're thinking, you know what? No. Well, then good. This message isn't for you and now you know it. I pray that you would wake up tomorrow morning convicted, led by the Spirit to say, you know what, Lord, yes. Yes. I mean, that happens to the best of us, right? We hear something and we're like, I don't like that in Scripture. I can't do that. I don't want to do that. But then the, it melds and it molds and eventually you're like, yeah, I'm okay. I asked you to answer whether or not this message is for you. Let me ask you this, are you be, are, have you been encouraged for the last half an hour or discouraged? Is this message for you? If it is, then here's the answer. Go and do. Okay, go and do. Go and be. Here's what it says. I'm going to uh, kind of close with this last verse. Verse 16 Actually, sorry, in verse 15, he says, For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, 
nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. It's not enough to know what I'm supposed to do. I must do it as well. And he tells us that that's going to bring blessing into our lives. You want to be part of something that matters? Be like Christ. Be like Christ. In as much as you can, with the help of each other, be like Christ. That is a faith that matters. That is a life that will change the world. One person or one situation at a time. Be a part of something that matters. Be like Christ. Amen? I hope this message was for you. If it's not and you want it to be, come talk to me after church. Or Scott, someone else here that you know loves Jesus and is trying their best to do this too. If this message is for you and you're still sitting here thinking, I don't know. That's why we take communion every week. Because we need that reminder of what Christ has done for us what he's still doing for us, that he's calling us to a new life. It's different than the old one that we had. So we come now to communion, to this time, this actual institution that the Lord set in place and said, do this as often as you're gathered together in my name. And here we are, we're gathered, and we're going to do communion, the Lord's Supper, in his name. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he lifted it and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. He took the cup, also lifted it and blessed it and said, this is my blood, which is poured out for you for the forgiveness of your sins. He offered them to his disciples to eat and to drink, and they did so together. Church, we're invited to this meal if we believe that Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior. Let me put that another way. If this message was for you, then you're invited to this table. Come and eat with us. Take a minute and prepare yourselves. The scriptures tell us that we should never take part in the Lord's Supper improperly with the wrong heart. So take a minute. If there's sin in your life that needs to be confessed, as there so often is with us, then do so. If you need to take a minute and, and pray, please do. And when you're ready, come down. You'll take a, pe- uh, a stack of the cup and the bread. There's two cups together. Um, take both. If you brought an offering today, you can put that in the blue buckets up here uh, for your giving. As, as God has called us to be givers, generous, willing, sacrificial givers, uh, the, that's up here for us during this time as well. Church, we invite you to this meal to come and eat to remember what Christ has done for us.